Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The movie Second Samuel is about an autistic young man from South Georgia who begins a pen pal correspondence with then-President Harry Truman. It's a sweet story, very funny, but also with serious subjects such as racial injustice, special needs, and gender expression. Later, we'll listen back to a conversation with the director and cast members, including the wonderful Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lynn. First, the heavy metal band Mastodon might be the last performers you'd expect to announce a special acoustic-only performance, and yet they're doing just that later this week with a live stream from the Georgia Aquarium. The group, comprised of Troy Sanders, Brent Hines, Bran Daler, and Bill Kelleher, are celebrating their 21st year together. And for those unfamiliar... It's been an incredible couple of decades for them. Mastodon has released seven studio albums, composed songs for movies and TV shows, appeared as wildlings on HBO's Game of Thrones, and won numerous awards, including the 2018 Grammy for Best Metal Performance. The fact that Mastodon was also nominated for Best Rock Album that same year, is a testament to their unique style. Guitarist Bill Kelleher recently spoke with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes over Zoom, and she started their conversation by asking about their difficult-to-define sound. Most people describe your music as metal, but I think fans would put more weight on so many other things. There's a bit of thrash in there. There's some punk, there's psychedelic, and there's full-on rock and roll. When you're in a position to have to describe your music, what do you usually go for? Um, That's pretty close, honestly. <laughs> right on. Uh, yeah, the way I kind of look at it, it's easiest to just tell people, yeah, we're a metal band. It depends on who's asking me. If it's like someone's dad who's like, you know, in their 70s, like, oh, you play music? I'm like, yeah, we're like hard rock, heavy metal. And they're like, okay. But if it's someone who's maybe younger and heard a lot of our contemporaries or someone who grew up on Thin Lizzy, Rush, Metallica, you know, Slayer and Tool, I'm like, we're kind of all those bands mixed in into one kind of soup. But, you know, I always looked at it where I come from a very punk rock, thrash metal background, being from uh, Western New York, uh, Braun and I, you know, together. Braun, Braun has a lot of, you know, Genesis, King Crimson, proggy style stuff mm-hmm. in his repertoire of musical tastes. I mean, his musical tastes, well, all of ours, you know, they're all over the map. But, you know, when I first met Braun 20, 30 
well, like going on 30 years now. Oh my gosh. So, you know, you listen to a lot of Bjork and, you know, the Bee Gees and Amazing. yeah, and all the way to King Diamond and Slayer. But, you know, I was in bands with him back in the early 90s and I just assumed, oh, well, this guy's, he's really into metal. But when I saw his record collection and, and would go over his house, I was like, oh, that's cool. Cause I'm, I'm kind of the same way. You know, I grew up listening to stuff that was on the radio because that's all there was. But once I heard like, by accident the dead kennedys mm. everything i knew about music changed i was just like wow what is this and then i got onto the ramones and once i went from listening to like you know led zeppelin and trying to play that stuff on guitar to hearing the ramones i was like i can actually play this stuff the right. Ramones, right? <laughs> and i can i can start a band and i and i did immediately like i was 15 i got a guitar all my friends were learning these crazy guitar solos by Eddie Van Halen and, and probably still are. And I was like, I don't have time for all that stuff. You know, I, it's, I want to get out there and start playing. So once I discovered punk rock music, it was like the freedom of, oh, so I don't have to go to Berkeley or, you know, take guitar lessons for the next 10 years in order to be in a band. It's more about the songwriting than how proficient you are. And I took that and I ran with it. And uh, all our musical styles are in there. When we came down here, down south, you know, Brent and Troy kind of brought this. Um, I mean, Brent, Brent had this originally kind of had this real sludgy, really low tune guitar sound with a lot of hybrid picking stuff, which I can only assume came from, you know, playing banjo or playing sort of country, like kind of hillbilly music, you know, which he does play a lot of surf rock stuff. And um, right. all that stuff's amazing. So we're definitely a hybrid of a lot of different genres, but the main core is like rock. Right. You know, in fact, I was just playing our record for a guy I kind of know. He's one of our tenants over at uh, Ember City and starting up a, a newspaper. And he was doing an interview for uh, West End Sound, which is my recording studio with my partner, Tom Tapley. And we were talking about the new record. And I was like, yeah, we recorded it right here. And he's like, oh, cool. I'd love to hear a little bit. And I started playing him some. And he's a band guy, too. He's like, wow. He's like, I really haven't listened to you guys since the early days, about, you know, 15, 16 years ago. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. we're, we're a totally different band now. He goes, this sounds like more rock and roll, like, like a more mature type of band altogether. And I was like, well, it is because we've, we've grown. It's been, you know, we've been a band for 21 years. Which is phenomenal that anyone could keep any relationship for 21 years, I feel like is is a feat within itself. But for an artistic endeavor to last for so long with the same exact members is phenomenal. Yeah. When we first started playing together, I mean, I knew we had something really special. I never in a million years, I didn't really see much further than like my next beer. You know what I mean? Or our, <laughs> our next gig. It was like... Oh, cool. We're doing this in 20 minutes. Great. We're on stage in, in an hour. Great. Cool. Show me where's the stage. I'll get up there and play. And when it's time to go, we'll drive to the next venue. And that's just kind of how we lived for like the first five years, just by the seat of our pants, really. And I was totally complacent. I was like, this is great. This is what I've always wanted to do is just play music. And we were making a little bit of money, but all the money went right into the band, which was fill the gas tank and anytime we'd have you know money to split up it was like we need an oil change or or the engine blew up or new tires and it was just like that kind of started getting old you know but <laughs> i just remember being like happy as to actually just be able to do it and and it's not an easy feat by any means you know we we went out there with nothing except the guitars on our backs and uh the nine songs that we had learned together and just started just doing it because people ask me all the time well, how do you make how do you make it I'm like, that's a really vague question. Like, yeah. there is no answer to that except for you just get in the van and you just go right. every day. And I'm still, quote, making it. You know, there's no, there's never a point in your life, because I'm asked that a lot too. Like, what was the point in your life when you realize that you've made it? I'm like, well, I'm still not there yet. It's like every every day I'm struggling to make it somehow, some way, you know, it's, it's not just something you put down. It's something that you're always carrying around with you. And, you know, I'm always working on something for the band, whether it's, you know, selling merch in our downtime now or writing a new song or what our next video release is going to look like or artwork or whatever. It's always every day. It's something. So it's a nonstop work schedule. Right. And you said that people ask you, when did you know you made it? And I understand your answer. And it's 
True. And you have to keep creating and keep trying new things. But there had to be a moment when you got nominated for your first Grammy that something clicked in you like, holy moly, we've been nominated for a Grammy. I mean, yeah, but I think we were so busy when we had like Warner Brothers and like Sony and Interscope and Capitol Records all inviting us out for lunch and taking us out for drinks and courting us. That It was like the stuff, you know, you see in movies. It was exactly like that. You get this big cheesy guy from whatever record company. Oh, hey, guys, I want to take you out, get you wasted and drunk, and then we'll talk about business. I'm like... Anyway, after a few drinks, I'd be like, well, listen, man, I don't never talk business when I'm drinking because that's the worst time to make any decisions. Not that we played them at all, but we just kind of played hard to get because we were very hard to get. We were busy. We were working. We didn't care about like, oh, Warner Brothers wants to offer you like a million dollars to like sign with them. We were more afraid of that because we're like, well, we've heard horror stories of like once these big record companies take over, then everything changes. They want to turn you into like a radio band. And we're not that. We don't want to be that. We just enjoy doing what we're doing. Yeah. And you guys have existed for 21 years doing exactly what you want to do and creating some really unique and constantly evolving music. Right. So we were talking about when you guys started getting courted and when you were becoming massively popular. I read that there was a week in April of 2017 when Emperor of Sam was out that that album literally outsold every other record in the U.S. for a solid week. You know, if it were, if it were 20 years ago, it'd be a different story. There would be millions and millions of records, but it probably is only by a couple hundred records here and there because people aren't buying as much physical copies anymore. But that still was a, a great feat. And we were very stoked about that. I was like, wow, that's really awesome. That's killer. Pretty amazing. We should talk about the aquarium show because when I first saw it listed, I just thought that was bonkers. And my my very first thought was, oh, those poor fish. However, will they survive this? <laughs> well, there's a DB limit there. So we had to play. So you guys are going acoustic, right? Yeah. Have you ever done that before? We have not. What's it like practicing for it? Well, it was interesting. We, you know, we had a bunch of rehearsals and some songs we tried to change around a little bit just to make them uh, a little more acoustic friendly. And we were able to do that on a couple songs, but it didn't seem as difficult as I thought it would be. You know, we definitely wanted to make it something special for the aquarium and for our fans, something we'd never done before. We all have acoustic guitars and Troy has an acoustic bass. We just kind of went through our song lists and we've got like I don't know, 90, 100 songs. And we're like, oh, what about this one? What about that one? And there's a couple we'd never played live before. Elephant Man and Pendulous Skin. We have one brand new song off our new album. They All these songs really lent themselves to being played acoustically or like a cleaned up version. So neat. Yeah, really neat. I'm, I'm excited about it. Who pitched the idea to you? I forget whose idea it was about the aquarium. I think it could have been management or maybe someone in the band was like, Oh, it'd be really cool to play at the aquarium one day just to have the backdrop of all the fish. It's just nature and it's, you know, keep our fan base interested and, and, you know, showing that we're actually working and doing stuff. Even though we just got done recording, you know, a really long record, but we thought, yeah, let's do this. It's just something that no one's really done before, especially in like, you know, metal or hard rock, like in our genre. So yeah, super cool. And you mentioned the new album. So you're finished? Yeah, we've been finished for a little while. I'm just, I'm dying to get it out there into people's ears, you know. I bet. When are you thinking it'll be released? Probably later on this year. I was hoping it'd be a little sooner, but I think with holidays and summer and I don't know, there's al- there's always like, oh, summer's not a great time to release a record. Oh, winter's not a great time to release oh a record. Like, well, when is a good time to release a record? So let's no get it doubt. out. And yeah. you worked with a new producer on this one, right? Yeah, we did. David Bottrell. Can't say enough good things about him. He's a great, great guy. Yeah, he's worked with uh, Tool and Rush and a ton of other people that I can't think of at the moment. King Crimson, Peter Gabriel. Very cool. Most others. Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, and I'm talking to Mastodon guitarist Bill Keller. Bill, you mentioned earlier when talking about one of your tenants, Ember City. Could you share a little bit about that project for The Unfamiliar? 
So Ember City is uh, a rehearsal facility that Mastodon owns and I manage. For years, I had been looking for our own spot, like our own kind of compound. And that's, that's really what it is. It's kind of like, it's like our headquarters. And uh, I've been looking around, looking around, and you know how the Atlanta market is right now and how it's been for the past few years. You know, we kind of bought it right in time because the housing market and, you know, it's, it's just crazy right now. There's not enough places for people to live. And we kept getting kicked out and moved and displaced from all of our rehearsal facilities just because people were selling them because they couldn't, they couldn't say no. They were just being offered so much money. They were going out from under us and we'd be on tour and our place would get moved and we had to have people move our stuff while we weren't even there. And it was, uh, it was becoming ridiculous. So I'm like, I'm just going to look for, look for a place of our own and we'll just take a loan out and we'll just try to get it. Cause I know that there's definitely a need for rehearsal rooms right now because there's all the bands are displaced us right. included. So I, we found a place a couple of years ago and I started building and just drew it all out. And we built like 11 rooms over there at first. And that went well for a couple of years. And I was like, okay, let's move on to phase two, where we're going to build some more rooms down in the basement area. So we, we built some more rooms down there. And there were, there were a couple of really big rooms that I just couldn't seem to get rented out. And I'd always been talking to my, one of my best friends, Tom Tapley, who's now my partner. I'd always been telling him like, Hey, we need to like, I need to build you a studio and we need to partner up and, and create a studio here in Atlanta that's comparable to like a Southern Tracks or same thing with studios. They're going under left and right. Not enough people are, are using them and spending the money. People are recording at home. and Things are just changing, you know, but uh, we moved in there, I don't know, going on three years now and Mastodon recorded there. We did our, uh, we did a couple months there, which was great. awesome because it's just hearing the sounds that we created in in a room that you know I know that I had my hands on building just kind of a dream of mine it's small but it, and it's quaint but it's uh it's a really great studio and we've had a lot of big bands in there um Blackberry Smoke comes in a lot nice we get a lot of bands from out of town the Vagabonds and it's not just like heavy stuff either you know there's a lot of country music comes through and we're still building our name we haven't really advertised very much either which we really need to get on that you mentioned your videos earlier, and I can't talk to you without bringing up Asleep in the Deep, which is an incredible video for a great song, but also possibly one of the greatest cat videos ever created. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that psychedelic, trippy, amazing video and who came up with the idea? Uh, I think that was Braun and Skinner who's the artist, did um, the album cover for Once More Around the Sun. And he's just a good friend of ours. And I think Braun had been, you know, he'll just like come into practice some days and say, yeah, I got this crazy idea for a video. I'm like, okay, let's hear it. He'd be like, I was dreaming last night that like my cat, he sneaks out at night because he really, he really does. I'll let him out to pee or whatever, but he, you know, he goes off for a few hours and it's like the life of the cat and what the cat does while, you know, while he's out on his adventure and we're, we're inside sleeping, you know, just thinking it's it's just an animal going outside to like catch bugs or whatever. But no, he's off saving the world and climbing mountains and, and doing all these crazy things that we'd never imagined cats would do, living a, sec a, a secret life. So that's that's, that's right. where it was based on. Yeah. Going on Lord of the Rings style adventures. Yeah. Really amazing stuff. So videos have to be a fun part of the creative process, but in general, do you like writing, recording, playing live? Which part of the process gets you most excited when you know that it's going to be coming up? Well, I mean, it's kind of all those things in that order. Writing is where, you know, I, I it's really hard to just say, and we get this from the record company once in a while. It's like, oh, hey, we need a, we need a song for this movie and we needed it yesterday. So can you guys just whip up a song? It's like, oh no, gosh. I can't really. I just I can't force like creativity. You know, I have to like kind of sit and let it come to me. Otherwise, it sounds contrived, you know. So I do have a studio in my, in my house where I'm calling you from now. And uh, I built it so I could just come down here and kind of try to relax and get away from pressures of, of normal everyday stuff. Just kind of let stuff flow, which it does, you know. And when I get on something, you know, it's the excitement of like when I get one or two parts together and then a third part, that's 
to me, it gets very exciting. But mm-hmm. I feel like the real excitement is when you're in the studio and it's actually going to tape or it's like, man, I, I remember when this riff was just a little baby and, you know, we're nurturing it and trying to get it to grow into something bigger and oh, a little baby riff yeah it's like growing up now and, it, and it's actually going into the song because for me it's um it's very cathartic to get those riffs out of my system and out of my head it'll bother me that i have all these riffs but they don't have friends like they don't have <laughs> uh you know someone will be like well, when did you write that the song for emperor sand and i was like well i actually wrote the album came out in 2017 but i wrote the riff in like 2012 Oh, wow. you are nurturing riffs. Yeah, well, the riff just didn't, you know, it didn't feel right with anything else until something else, this one riff just came along. And that's when the excitement happens, like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the one I knew I was waiting for the right one. And to me, it's cathartic, because I can purge this riff out of my system. And basically, my means of like writing a song is, I just... I'm always playing guitar and I have my phone with me. So I'll record an idea that I think is good. And then I'll just kind of move on to the next thing. Later when I have time, I'll go through all those riffs. I'll be like, that's good. That's garbage. That's good. That's good. Then I'll kind of dump those out and put them into my computer and I'll start messing with them and start trying to make them even better. And then trying to find friends for them to play with. And it doesn't always work. I kind of write one or two riffs at a time. And it's just, you know, it's hard for me to sit down and go, I'm just going to write an entire song right now because I like twists and turns and I like the song to go around in, in different places. Well, I like how much you nurture your riffs and find them friends to grow with and then set them free into the world. Right. Thank you. Good job. Bill, you have a reputation as a really wonderful family man. And so many of us struggle with work-life balances. And I was just wondering if you have any advice for people, because you work really hard to nurture a beautiful family. I'm going to have to pass that on to my wonderful wife, because raising two teenage boys right now is, is very difficult. And she's the academic one. I'm the more, like, we play good cop, bad cop a lot. And uh, I'm usually the good cop where I'm just like the easygoing dad, like, okay, yeah, that's cool, guys, do whatever you want. And she's the one holding them responsible for what colleges are you going to be looking at and what do your Chinese homework and this and that. And I'm because I'm like, I don't know Chinese. I can't help him. But, (laughs) you know, I just try to be at least be home and be present. You know, I mean, it's you say that, but it's like I feel like to my kids, I'm like the most uncool dad their friends think i'm cool they're like man your dad's in this really cool band and they're like yeah 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 seen it all before you know i mean i definitely work hard for my family and try to do as much as i can because i don't have a college education and this music thing is all i've got you know so i'm trying to pay the bills and you know be around and cook dinner and do like normal dad stuff you know i mean i'm I'm very hands-on. Like when you when you called me, I was on the phone with my buddy trying to get some electric back on at my neighbor's house because my neighbors are always stopping by like, hey, I, I locked my, my neighbor across the street was like, I locked myself out. I can't get in. Can you help me? And I was like, yeah, like I'm more grass for once in a while, but it's not much grass. It's only like a little tiny patch, you know, and I'm just just because I'm, I don't mind mowing the lawn at all. And I'm like right across the street and she's an older woman. So I'm just like, it's cool. Miss Cherry, I'll go over and do it for you, you know. So sweet. Um, but as far as family, you know, my, my kids are going on 17. And I feel like in the early days, I wasn't around that much because I was constantly touring and kind of immature and not really ready to be a father and, and not really understanding what being a father meant. I mean, I'm still learning, but at least now I'm not sitting at the bar anymore. I'm at, at least I'm at home and I'm like making dinner and I'm there if somebody needs me and uh, just doing my part really. And that's, that's really all it is. is just do your part and then maybe do a little extra. Mastodon guitarist, Bill Kelleher. Speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, on July 15th, the band will live stream a special acoustic-only set from the Georgia Aquarium. And you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylight.
Gates. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There are a number of films set in the South that are appealing for their colorful characters who both embody and defy stereotypes. Forrest Gump and Cookie's Fortune are two that come to mind. A newer entry is Second Samuel. And last year, I had a chance to speak via Zoom with the movie's director, Wayne Patterson, along with two of Second Samuel's actors, E. Roger Mitchell and Atlanta-based Bethany Ann Lind. We began our conversation with the director giving us a synopsis of the film. Second Samuel is a small town in southern Georgia and takes place in 1949 and is mainly the conversation of a young autistic boy in the town telling stories to Harry Truman through a pen pal relationship. And uh, these stories remind Harry of the, the small town nature that he brought was brought up in Missouri and uh, become a delight until the piano teacher dies and some secrets come out and it tosses that little town into some consternation, that's for sure. Oh, yes. Now, this is your first film, and you had a huge career change. What sparked that big move? It was uh, it was permission from my wife, first of all. <laughs> that would be the number one thing. But it was the, finally the, the realization that at 52 years old, nobody was knocking down my door to direct a film. And that if I was going to do it, I was just going to have to make it happen. And so I was able to form the right partnerships and get the right people helping people like uh, Joan Karpolis and, and Sherry Lipscomb, and as well as Mark Brown, who is a, a regular first AD there in Atlanta. And he brought on some people. And then these two people that are on with us just were magnanimous. I can't believe how, how we were able to attract these two talented individuals. Well, I have to cheer them on because the, your roles were just wonderful. Although, Bethany, I think it's the first time I've seen you play someone less than kind. <laughs> So much less than kind. Oh, yes, she ever. But it definitely went against type. Bethany, I should have asked you to explain the title because you do such a lovely job of it as (laughs) Jimmy Deanne. Yes, let me see if I can remember that monologue from two years ago. (laughs) Oh, goodness. No, yeah, as, as I recall, the town was called Samuel. And it burned down. Was it during the Civil War? Yeah. Yes, Sherman. Sherman comes through, right? That guy. Yes. Yes, and burns the town down. And they build it back up again. And now it's called Second Samuel. <laughs> now, Wayne, why did you want to adapt the play Second Samuel to film? Well, I had directed the play for our community theater several years ago and established a relationship with Miss Pamela Parker, who is the playwright and is a resident of Peachtree City there in Georgia. This story goes with everything I believe that the Southern culture should be. You know, we, we tend to grow up in this area and forget that we're raised to love our neighbors and we are raised to be able to treat people a certain way. And we get into these small cliques and forget that everybody we encounter is a neighbor. 
And, and it just becomes so important to tell that message in a way that reminds us. I think, I think one of the, the film critics said it gently opens the door wide. And so that's what we were trying to accomplish. You mentioned that the film is narrated by a developmentally challenged, you said autistic young man. Yes. B flat. Well, in 1949, autism would have gone undiagnosed. Right. So mentally challenged is the way they would have phrased it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Sweet, wise young man, Bernard Flat, also known as B flat to the town. Why do you think it was important to the playwright that B flat should be the narrator? You know, I don't know what was originally in Pamela Parker's mind, but that innocence, that wisdom, it just comes through. It, it comes through in a soft, kind-hearted way without, without pointing a finger or, or degrading someone else. And I, I'm not sure that any other character would have had that ability. Miss Harriet's born Miss Gertrude passed away. You remember her, right? Miss Harriet, she's... I told you about that tall lady who lives right here on Railroad Street. You know, she, she give she give piano lessons. Yeah, you remember her? Nobody. I can hear you yakking all the way in the kitchen. I was just playing. Well, you ought to start playing a little softer, buddy. I can't hear myself think. That's U.S. He's my best friend, and. He's usually real nice, but he's just got a lot on his mind right now, so he don't mean nothing. B-flat has the ability to cut right to the chase at the heart of the matter uh, without, without insulting anybody else. And so it, it, is a, it is that gentleness, it is that innocence that, that creates that character. And what we had to do in the film is to find a way to accomplish that narration and that's where the character of Harry Truman came in so that so that we could duplicate the process in the play. Um, B flat narrates and talks straight to the audience and you can't really break that fourth wall as well in film as you can on the stage. So in order to accomplish that, we added the, the character of Harry Truman and created him narrating his own letters. Well, I think that was a wonderful addition. And I, I like the way the narration leads into dissolves to the White House. Yes, and a favorite line, if you will permit me to include this, with a spoiler alert, when Harry Truman gets on the phone to ask what kinky means, and yes, he's told, ask J. Edgar, I thought that <laughs> was priceless. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny how, how in, in the audiences, you, you just about have to be 30 years old or, or older to get that joke. But yes, absolutely. That's a great line. The film addresses several divisive issues, foremost among them. The plague of racism, especially in the South during the era of Jim Crow when the movie is set. We see it in the behavior of townsfolk toward black people in the film. E. Roger Mitchell, would you talk about some of the ways in which that is demonstrated, some examples from the screenplay? I consider, well, in what I've known and learned in history that as far as when we address uh, race and color in these United States of America, a lot of times in the onset, we know we, we call the dilemma, the little racism aspect of it, and it comes to the forefront pretty much all the time, to say the least. However, in this particular film and in many, many other stories through history, there's something called a village and color didn't exist as much as it did in other places. And say, for instance, where we are in our town, people treat each other like human beings. At least people are trying a little bit harder to do so versus some other places when in, in history where it was a lot more overt. I think when I say village, I mean a friend is a friend. It doesn't matter who they are or where they're from or what they look like. And that's what drew me to this, uh, this project, the humanistic aspect 
And that transcends and crosses all lines of anything that's visual because we're talking about human beings and spirit. And so that's what I feel happens in Second Samuel when it comes to, you know, to my character. It's like, hey, we've been here. We've grown up together. We know each other. Our parents know each other. And that's what the village means to me. And that transcends anything that's visual. Yeah, but. much of the interaction among the townspeople, black and white, is not only civil, it's friendly. You don't think that was extraordinary for 1949? Actually, Lois, I mean, to say absolutely yes, extraordinary, but at the same time, what Second Samuel is doing, uh, amongst other projects we've seen over history, it illuminates the fact that it actually was even more common and more places than people might know that folks treat each other that way, in a, you know, kind way, humanistic way. So, yes. Miss Lois, there is also a, uh, e a scene with E. Roger that is so nuanced that you almost miss it. There, there's a, a sweet scene, and it's slightly comical, where one of the, the larger racists, uh, played by Clay Chapel kindly suggests that maybe E. Rogers' character shouldn't attend the, the funeral because he's colored. And B. Flat in that sweet innocence just say, that won't bother nobody. He's always been that color. <laughs> and this bar full of Caucasian men laugh at that line. And if you look at E. Rogers' face in that, he grins and, and nods and kind of looks, but he's got this sideways glance about that's not really funny. I mean, it's true, but it's not really funny. And nobody else could, these two actors, Hamilton Sage played B-flat with, with just almost perfection. And these two actors, that showed relationship and character and such nuance that could be a funny line and a, just a critical line to showing the racism that did exist at the time. Mm. Well, E. Roger, your character, U.S. Simpson, whom I'm, presuming was named for Ulysses S. Grant, is noble. Um, would you talk about embodying that kindness and ability to rise above the nastiness, some of the nastiness that surrounds him? Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, as far as like the craft is concerned, quote-unquote acting is concerned, um, I like to give a, a shout out to my my late father, Edgar Mitchell, who's been gone for a long time now, God bless him. But when I think about Ulysses, I thought about my father and how his spirit, just a really, really kind man, very modest, very practical, hardworking folks, him and my mom both, and I miss them obviously every day. But there was something that was just very calm and, and kind about him. And I kind of modeled Ulysses after my dad, very soft-spoken, didn't say a whole lot, not a whole lot of education per se, but a whole lot of common sense. And so I kind of took the lead from my dad, you know, my mom and, and the upbringing that they gave me. I mean, also, Lois, it starts on the page for me as far as, quote unquote, the acting, the craft is concerned. I think the literature, the words on the page, that is the breath, in my opinion, of the character. So what is on the page, thanks, Wayne, and thanks to, you know, obviously the play that's been, been around forever, it, it, you know, that informs me. And then the time, you know, the period, and we know the set of circumstances. So I just kind of dug into my own family. You know, I looked at my dad. He would have carried himself in that way. Second Samuel actors E. Roger Mitchell and Bethany Ann Lind, along with the film's director, Wayne Patterson, We'll return to more of this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Breitzis, and if you've just tuned in, our guests are the film director Wayne Patterson with Atlanta-based actors Bethany Ann Lind and E. Roger Mitchell. We're talking about their movie, Second Samuel. Here, I ask Bethany Ann Lind about her preparation for the role of Jimmy Dean, beauty queen, 
and town gossip. I feel like I grew up with with a few Jimmy Deans, although that I know of, none of them were quite that mean. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, if you grow up in any sort of town, city situation, you know, you know people who just know everybody's business and know everything that's going on and maybe like, maybe add a little to it too. So definitely a conglomeration of people I knew. I love it when you utter the line later in the film about sending someone back up north, like to Atlanta. I thought, okay, Atlanta's up there with New York. And I I think that probably was and maybe still is a perception of Atlanta as the urban center that is not necessarily the same as the rest of Georgia or the South. For sure. I I grew up in a smallish town in North Carolina, and I was afraid of Atlanta. Like, that's the big city. Well, you have conquered it. (laughs) I love it now. (laughs) Good. Why do you think Jimmy Deanne is shattered to find out the big secret in the movie? Shattered is a really good word for it. I think it's the thing of of when you see your world a certain way and when she finds out that her world is not the way that she thought it was. Yeah, it's the image of shattering is, is perfect because your world suddenly explodes a little bit. It's not what you thought it was. And you also have no control over that. I'm sure we've all been in experiences like that to a degree. <laughs> Take a global pandemic, for instance, where you know that afterwards the world is not going to be the same. Your world is not going to be the same. And, you know, it takes a minute to adjust. And Jimmy Dan does not do that very uh, graciously. <laughs> she does not know how to adjust with any sort of grace for other people by any means. Again, the wisdom of the character of B. Flat, the young man who adored Miss Gertrude. If U.S. Simpson was his father figure, she was his mother figure. Mm-hmm. And he, he is devastated. He's bereft at her passing. But then added to that is anger at the way the town responds when they find out Miss Gertrude's secret. He says, yesterday you loved her. Now you can't stand to have her buried here. Why is it so difficult for the town of Second Samuel to see their own hypocrisy? Do you think it's the time period? I would say each time period, most likely, (laughs) has its own set of hypocrisies. Certain groups of people have their set of hypocrisies that history will later decide, you know. And I think for for this town, it's not clear. If you just believe that something is wrong so strongly without any real reasoning, except that it's actually a little scary to you, it's very hard to see in a moment that it, it actually doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> that the thing you're afraid of is nothing to be afraid of, especially when you don't even see it as fear, you know, when you see it as just some sort of moral line that, that's that been invented somewhere along the way. Um, just the way things are. It's just right. the way things are. Right. And I, I think, like you said, like <laughs> it is that time period. It, that's the way things are. But I think it's pretty apparent we all have our own hypocrisies that come to light that It takes a minute. Wayne, your father was a minister and worked for the Southern Baptist Convention. Did your father's beliefs influence your desire to make this film? Part of what I was drawn to was when my father came to see the play when I directed it, he pointed out that this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, didn't pick the Samaritan at random. He picked the one person that every Pharisee out there would 
absolutely condemn and told them that's your neighbor. That's who you're supposed to, to treat well. That's who you're supposed to treat like you love yourself. And my father is the one who pointed that out. Uh, my, my father, like you, Rogers, is, well, my father was a, a doctorate in education from uh, Southwestern Seminary and one of the most intelligent men and the most kindest and wisest men I've ever known in my life. And without his take on Southern Baptist Protestantism, I'm not sure I would have be the same person. And, and it's not the standard Southern Baptist that you see on the news or anything like that. He had a very loving spirit, and he thought that our first command was to love our neighbors as ourselves. And ultimately, that is the message of this film. In fact, you have a hashtag, don't you? Yes, ma'am. Uh, hashtag love your neighbor. And U.S. says this a number of times throughout the film. Why is this ideology so resonant now? My favorite line of E. Rogers is, Mr. Moselle, you going to be a Pharisee or you going to love your neighbor? Mm -hmm. uh, Roger, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think, quite frankly, like as piggybacking off of a couple of things, uh, like Bethany was talking about the hypocrisies that are sometimes built in that it may not even exist. The fact that like the Samaritan, these are the things that I believe personally should be happening every day between human beings. So to me, I think what Second Samuel, the reminder, the mirror that we're holding up to life is people have to work harder technically to not be this way. It's harder to be upset than actually be okay. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's easier to say hello. It doesn't take a whole lot of work, but like people have these built in, once again, quote unquote, hypocrisies of, of sorts. That takes work to uphold. I was just gonna add, what we hope that Second Samuel does is is hold a mirror up, especially to those, to those of us in the South who, who have these ingrained prejudices and ingrained ideas and, and slowly wipe the fog off that mirror and let us see ourselves the way we really are. Our small prejudices, our small ingrained thought patterns that, that are just not the way it should be. I hope that's what Second Samuel accomplishes. Mm. I must compliment the music. And I wondered about the music director. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of country or bluegrass, but there was something very special about this soundtrack. And it felt very blues-inflected. Travis Perry was our music director, and Travis has worked very closely with several artists throughout the Southeast. Travis invented the chord buddy. I don't know if you've ever seen that little piece of plastic clip on the end of your guitar to, to uh, learn how to play guitar, but uh, that's where he got his background. And, and he has a very bluesy style. And so I think that came out. Uh, we worked very closely on that music and selecting the pieces. And then we brought T. Graham Brown on board to uh, record the ending song. And T. Graham was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Well, Bethany, your voice is gorgeous. Thank you. It's I... so fun when I get to sing every now and then. And tried, we're off made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. While there are others living about us never molested though in the wrong did it beautifully thank you i think you touched upon this wayne but i will ask why is now an especially good time to release this film in relation to our current reckoning and specifically in the South. You know, we need a gentle reminder to reopen a discussion about who our neighbor is, about how we treat each other. And it doesn't matter what color, what gender, what religious preference or sexual preference. It, it does not matter, those things. At the very end of the movie, in fact, when after you've learned the secrets and, 
one of the things that gets said is it was about how she treated people. It was about how she took care of people. And ultimately, that's what's going to overcome any kind of prejudice. Loving each other is what's going to overcome. We're, we're not going to get the response we needed. You know, this is the age where if we don't like what somebody says, we just block them. And, and all of a sudden on social media, that just simply limits the ideas that we have access to. Why do that? Why block somebody just because they have a slightly different opinion than you do? I'd rather hear what they have to say. I'd rather them hear what I have to say. And let's let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate if that's necessary. But it doesn't have to descend into argument. And it doesn't have to descend into to anger. Um, we can calmly figure things out. That's what America's been doing for 200 years, is, is moving in the right directions because we have dialogue, because we have a caring uh, attitude toward our neighbor. That's the secret to it. And that's what Second Samuel tries to do is repoint out that, that we, we just have to treat each other like neighbors. Wayne Patterson, director of Second Samuel. He was joined by actors Bethany Ann Lind and E. Roger Mitchell. The film can be found on Amazon Prime, Vimeo, and several other streaming platforms. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., How I Became a Pirate, a summertime outdoor children's production from Horizon Theater. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.